Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review here on KUOW in Seattle. I'm Bill Radke. It's good to talk with you again. We get together at the end of the week, and when I say we, I mean me and some journalists who know their stuff, and we tell you stuff. We ask questions. We try to figure out what happened this week and what it means. And I'm so happy to have on Seattle Met Senior Editor Allison Williams. Welcome back, Allison. Thanks a lot. Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee. Welcome back, Jennifer. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be here. Nice to see you. And Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman. Hey, you, David. Hello. And I can see all uh, all these folks because we stream the show for you on YouTube and Facebook. In case you want to watch, just search KUOW Public Radio. Uh, David, is that an orange or a tomato on your cap, on your ball cap? Oh, it's a tomato. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was my guess. Uh, yeah. Colors can be funny on 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 Zoom. Allison, is that are those orange headphones or salmon colored? Uh, I always find salmon to be a weird color. Like it doesn't actually to me look like the color of salmon. But mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of what this is, pinkish, yeah. orangish. Yeah, salmon's got a little more red going on. Jennifer, do you care about uh, any of that? <laughs> uh, I was actually really uh, struck by that tomato. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is the greatest food. The single, if I had to choose one greatest food that I wouldn't want to eat all by itself, but that makes everything better. I think we can agree on the tomato. But are there other things? Should we talk about the news of the week as well? Sure. I mean, we're here and, and the show's week in review. So let's talk about what happened this week. You know, the time that our state legislature decided that there were too many dangerous high speed car chases, police car chases, and they passed a law restricting when police could give chase? Well, police chiefs claim that Washingtonians have learned. They now know that police can't chase them. So when they see the flashing police lights in their rearview mirror, they don't pull over. They just keep driving. The head of the state sheriffs and police chiefs, Steve Strand, says since January of this year, more than 900 drivers have failed to stop for a state patrol trooper and local police departments report the same behavior. Here's some of this report uh, from this week's story by uh, KUOW's Austin Jenkins. We have seen a significant change in the environment out there where the, the word is out. Case in point, listen to what happened in Redmond, Washington in March. 911, what are you reporting? A driver called 911 to say they were driving with a suspended license and would not stop for the officer trailing behind them. The driver actually cited the House bill that restricts police pursuits. Are you able to pull over? No, because I'm driving suspended. He's not going to get me. It's a violation of 1054. It's a violation of 1054, meaning the law. That is a savvy scoff law. Um, David, since we're talking cars and you're a transportation reporter, I'll, I'll start with you. Do you believe the police chief's account of what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I, I do believe that they're probably seeing more of this. It's hard to it's hard to compare exactly because um, unless I missed it, they don't have like a ton of historical data on how many people per year are are not stopping for police. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I I had heard grumblings about this in doing other reporting too, so it's it's certainly come up independently of of recent reporting, and I know it's a thing that people are talking about. Um, you know, the the thing that's a little harder for me to separate is. You know, if you look at the roads for the last two years, we've also seen uh, historic numbers of deaths and serious injuries on the roads. And so, um, you know, we're kind of coming at this from a baseline of of just a more dangerous environment on the roads for lots of reasons that um, people kind of, you know, probably a, a variety of reasons, not one thing specifically. But um, so so I guess my question is, is how much of it is specifically related to these new laws um, and and how much of it is kind of just related to this larger trend that we've seen across the country of a historic number of people dying or getting seriously injured. I'd be curious to check in with uh, police departments in other states and other, you know, outside of Washington and see if they're seeing something similar. If they're not, then, you know, then I, I think it's probably there's probably something there. If they are, then it might be part of a bigger trend. We'll talk more about this law in a moment. Allison, any reaction to uh, to this story? Well, I, I heard this story while driving down I-90 on, on KUOW, and I immediately raised an eyebrow when I heard them say that there's a specific number, which sounds very big, 900, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, mm-hmm. um, that they don't have any data to compare it to in the past to say whether this is an increase, um, and that they were attributing it specifically to this law, which I 
personally had not heard of uh, until hearing the story, which made me doubt that en masse Washington drivers specifically are thinking about this new law and therefore changing their behavior. I think there's absolutely a, a possibility that the tenor of behavior on our highways has changed has shifted. But just that that reaction to me of hearing that, well, we, we're going to throw a big number at you and expect you to react and say, well, that's awful. It must be terrible. We should, uh, you know, rethink this law. When I, other than that one driver who went on 911 and cited this, this law, I would not expect that that would be a direct reason why people would change behavior. Well, Jennifer, sort of we, my reaction. Yeah, we should say a, a little more about this law then. My, uh, tell me if I have this right. My understanding is that <laughs> Um, after this restriction, police are allowed to give chase in limited circumstances that basically they have to judge the situation to be dangerous. For example, it's an escaped felon or it's somebody accused of a violent crime. Jennifer, what other uh, information or, or questions do you have about this? Yeah, I mean, law enforcement is in a tough position because there has to be probable cause. And without that, by this law, they're not allowed to pursue these vehicles or high-speed chases. Um, and, you know, I did see some video that was shared by State Patrol with one of our reporters, Alejandro Guzman, this week. Um, and, you know, the officer is clearly um, initiating that traffic stop. The lights are going off. They're not moving at a high speed. They're just saying you should pull over. Um, and, you know, there are videos of vehicles that are, you know, going about this in a very dangerous way. Um, fleeing police, but also moving at high speeds across highways, going on shoulders, trying to bypass other drivers. Um, so I think there has to be a real conversation about safety all around, because um, in these situations, it can be quite dangerous as well. Um, yeah. And I also really appreciated the reporting um, with KUOW because I wondered, OK, so just take the license plate down. But even by doing so, um, in a lot of these cases, it sounds like the license plates don't match the vehicle. So it could be a situation of a stolen license plate. Um, and also, it's difficult to prove who was actually behind the wheel if it would be the person who had that license plate or a registered vehicle. Right. We asked some KUOW listeners uh, in, in our community feedback club about this topic. And uh, just a couple of comments here. James said, laws must be enforced. If not, lawbreakers will take advantage and lawlessness can only increase, which more greatly endangers the public. Mark, though, in Lake Stevens said, no police chase experience here, but every opponent of the measure who I've spoken to has a romantic idea of how police chases play out. None of them imagine the ruin of a lost loved one. Their fantasy doesn't reflect the data. So this gets us into the question of whether the law is, even if people are know the law and so they don't pull over, that the, the law could still be working like it's supposed to, which as some of the supporters say, fewer, fewer chases mean fewer innocent people hurt. And uh, to Jennifer's point, there's this debate over whether eventually if the police don't give chase, they've got the tools to, to, to catch the person eventually. David, does that, yeah, what do you make of yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think, I think this, the, there's been a lot of scrutiny paid to low, specifically low-level traffic stops since, uh, you know, since the protests in 2020, which is um, that, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of times people will be getting pulled over for something fairly minor, but, but maybe they have, um, you know, they have a warrant on their record or they have a failure to appear or something like that. And, and they just don't want to like have that interaction with the police. And then they run and then it, you take what it, like started as basically a pretty small thing. And then you create it, turn it into a da more dangerous situation. You know, at the state legislature, there, there was one bill to, to actually basically ban cops from making those kind of low level stops altogether. It didn't, didn't go anywhere, but in Seattle, they they reduced. Um, you know, the cops have been told no longer to stop people for broken taillights and or, or helmet violations or you know something hanging on their mirrors. And so, um, you, you know, for me, the question is, I guess more broadly, is yeah, when you when you turn something like a broken taillight into a high speed chase involving multiple police officers, what I mean is the the question. The big question is, you know, are are you actually turning a not that unsafe situation into something much more unsafe by having these chases. Um, and I think that's kind of what they're trying to legislate for. Right. We've been talking about this report from state police chiefs, the state patrol, but also some city police departments about uh, an increase in drivers just not pulling over 
since the uh, ability of police to give chase got restricted by the state legislature. And you're listening to KOW's Week in Review. I want to move to another note on criminal investigations. This week there was a joint investigation by the Seattle Times and KUOW that revealed that a lot of sexual assault cases involving adult victims are just not being investigated by the Seattle Police Department because that SPD unit is very understaffed. Normally the sexual assault unit has... 10 or a dozen detectives, and now it's got five detectives. Allison, we know that Seattle Police Department has lost a lot of officers. Do we know whether the sexual assault unit has been cut back more than other units have? Uh, You know, I was really impressed with the depth of reporting on this, and uh, it does sound like staffing is absolutely an issue, but also prioritization comes into play Mm -hmm. of where to put the staffing that is available. Um, I think it was it was a very shocking sort of thing to hear that these sexual assaults aren't being investigated. But you have to remember that sort of historically and nationwide sexual assault, uh, that that part of crime suffers from lack of investigation and lack of resources overall. So this particular uh, instance is there there's a suggestion that maybe emphasis on some other kinds of crimes, um, violent crimes, uh, visible, more visible crimes might have changed prioritization. It does sound like, like so many places, staffing is absolutely at play here. And, uh, you know, it's hard to say, I don't think I'm as familiar enough with the history of the SPD to say what drove this overall, but it is certainly a, a shocking sort of realization of just the number of people and that meaning the number of cases that are just not being investigated at all. Yes, Jennifer, city voters and business owners have said they want more enforcement of Homeless encampments and open drug markets and shoplifting and shootings. So is is how do, how does how does SPD make those kind of choices or or is it clear? Did you get a sense from the reporting that um, that this prioritization, this deprioritization of the sexual assault unit is out of whack with what 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 the people of the city want? Well, based on the reporting, which was excellent, it sounds like Chief Adrian Diaz did address this with city council members, um, and he was placing priority on patrol and, you know, having officers responding to those initial 911 calls. And he kind of gave this explanation of, okay, well, if we don't have the men and women to go out to those calls, then we will never know about any of these incidents, including those sexual sexual assaults. Um, which, you know, if you think about it, um, you can understand where the chief is coming from. Um, But on the other side, you know, that means there are dozens and dozens of victims who've suffered a sexual assault. um, And having that investigation uh, progressing and reaching a resolution can mean a really big deal for these individuals. So, it is very unsettling, um, and I think that it's really great that there's uh, a light being shined on this on this issue. Yeah, David, the King County Prosecutor's Office say they, there's a drop-off in the number of cases that are being referred to them by Seattle police, and that some cases get compromised by the delays. And then at last count, there are 48 cases just not currently being investigated at all. What was your reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I I don't know that you would find a lot of people who would um, point to past police uh, investigations of sexual assault as some like ideal example. I, I think this has been a uh, concern for a long time, both both locally and nationally, just around how police approach victims of sexual assault. That said, um, yeah, I mean, we, we see this a lot. Um, you know, you hear a lot about priority uh you know, hotspots, hotspot policing, you know, mm-hmm. in around Third Avenue, uh, sometimes in, you know, Magnolia even, or just certain neighborhoods around town where they put a lot more officers because there have been a lot of complaints about, you know, uh, certain crimes, property crimes, things like that. You know, I think this is an example of w- when those decisions are made, there are, there are uh, consequences uh, to that. The, the, the thing that stood out to me the most about the reporting that I think really drew a stark contrast was that the the number of officers assigned to respond to homeless encampments is much larger than the number of officers on the sexual assault unit. And, you know, the police officials say, you know, it's not a, it's not an apples to apples comparison and it's different training and and that's fine. And I'm sure that's true, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
it's not like people couldn't be retrained or you couldn't kind of create incentives for people to go, you know, if, if, if I have a hard time believing, believing that if leadership um, wanted more people in the sexual assault unit, uh, there, there wouldn't be some way of kind of making that happen, even if it's not maybe a direct comparison between homeless response and sexual assault investigations. In fact, our next news item here is also related to the moving away of work from the Seattle Police Department. Um, this has to do with, David, the fact that the city of Seattle is tearing up more than 200,000 parking tickets. Will you tell us what happened there? Yeah, this is this was uh, fascinating. So I got a call earlier in, in the week from the head of the uh, Seattle Police, uh, the Seattle Parking Enforcement Officers Guild, so the union representing parking enforcement officers. Um, and and about seven months ago, they or eight months ago, they were moved from the Seattle Police Department into the Seattle Department of Transportation. It was kind of, in some ways, the the most concrete kind of quote defund the police move that the city ever made because mm-hmm. they were actually reducing the footprint of the Seattle Police Department by a, you know about a hundred people who who do this job. It's fairly sig- significant, but um, you know when she called me, she said uh, that her officers had been looking at their tickets and were finding that they had all been canceled sent for the last seven months. And they hadn't been given any heads up as to this, that this would be happening. Hmm. So they had no idea why this was happening. And they, so, you know, they started looking into it. And, and what turned out what happened was when they moved from the Seattle police department into the Seattle department of transportation, they should have received a quote, special commission from the Seattle police department, which is the certification that is given to non-police employees to basically allow them to do enforcement actions. They never got that, which means they were never technically authorized over about seven months of work to be writing parking tickets. Um, so this is, we're looking at $5 million in refunds uh, of parking tickets that they've written, and then probably another, you know, five or $6 million in unpaid parking tickets that are going to be torn up. So somewhere in the order of, I would say $10 million hit to the city because somebody uh, screwed up and didn't write this commission. And it is a technicality, right? The, the, the people still deserve the tickets as much as they ever did. It's not like the city gave tickets to the wrong people. No, no, there's no evidence that they were doing anything that, I mean, they were, you know, there was some publicity around this move, but all evidence suggests that basically the parking enforcement officers are doing exactly the same job they were doing under the Seattle police department. They're just doing it under a different boss. So, you know, I'm sure, sure you can find listeners who would say that their parking ticket was unjust, but there's (laughs) no, uh, no one has ever thought a parking (laughs) ticket is is, is just. If but I, I have if, good news for them. If they think that, they probably don't have to pay it because uh, if it was written between September 1st and April 5th, it, it's probably been canceled. But if it, since it's a technicality, I'm calling on all honest people who, if you got a parking ticket, send the money in anyway, even if you don't have to. You parked too long. Do the right thing. I'm sure Allison would do that. I, I would be surprised if they could then process that. I, oh, I really? David probably knows more about that, but I, I don't think like you get to make a voluntary donation to like SDOT and have it <laughs> okay. them take the check. Would just be my guess. It would probably. It'll probably. It'll probably be cheaper for them to just mass forgive all these than to try and process individual refunds mm-hmm. like this. So, uh, I, as far as staff hours goes, I think. And and staff hours, and then honestly, like legal liability, I'm sure they're happy to just fork out the five million dollars uh rather than you know the more complicated paths this okay. could go down jennifer don't send the money in after all don't <laughs> well i was gonna say i did get a parking ticket in february mm-hmm. and i had to like check the dates once i saw uh the reports come out about this and i was like okay well i guess if they're just gonna send me the money back i mean i don't even know where to send it back to so i have no choice it's like having a lottery <laughs> right. ticket where did i put that parking ticket what's the date on there <laughs> Well, exactly. It was a it was a fun piece of reporting because so I got this tip and and this person had sent me a few license plate numbers and you know indeed I could see that they were canceled but you know it was only like four or five examples so I wanted more examples to know that this was actually happening so I was you know I've kind of started going back into the Seattle Times office and so I was literally walking around and sending people messages and being like come to my desk if you have a parking ticket and so <laughs> the other reporters were walking over to my desk and punching in their license plate number and. I'd, you know, we'd all, they'd, you know, yell and cheer when it turned out they didn't have to pay. It's a match. Yeah. <laughs> you learn just how good a Parker's your, your co- colleagues are. Yeah, exactly. I think I made a lot of friends. <laughs> well, that's the Seattle Times transportation reporter, David Croman, who, uh, who unearthed uh, and with the help of, of his colleagues, uh, that story for you. One last question on that. We got to take a break. Um, 
Who was actually beyond the, the defund the police had to do with harms coming from, you know, disproportionate enforcement and, and overuse of force. Who was being hurt by police, by the fact that parking tickets were written by police? And should should Seattle, should the Transportation Department be parking enforcement or shouldn't they? What's this really about? I mean, the the, the parking. Interestingly, the parking enforcement officers actually were were in favor of some kind of move out away from the Seattle Police Department okay. because they felt like they could be kind of bigger and better community ambassadors. And so they they actually wrote a letter saying, hey, we want to take on more responsibilities. And the idea is, you know, you kind of remove them from a law enforcement context and they can, you know, maybe they look more holistically at the problem and sort of, you know, mm. think about safety and things like that more. But they didn't, a lot of them didn't want to move into the Department of Transportation. They wanted to move into this other kind of community uh, service uh, department. So since they have moved into the Department of Transportation, my sense is there's actually a lot of dissatisfaction with how that's gone. Okay. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. It'll be, I think there's more to the story. So we'll see. David Croman on the Snafu Beat. And we've got uh, Allison Williams here from Seattle Met. We've got Jennifer Lee from Fox 13. And we're figuring out what happened this week on the Week in Review. We're streaming it on YouTube and Facebook. And we'll take a quick break and be right back. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. I'm your host, Bill Radke. And Jennifer Lee from Fox 13, you flagged a news item this week about Northwest Hospital Poison Centers reporting an increase in child suicide attempts. What is happening? Yeah, it's pretty uh, startling numbers that were coming out. Um, basically, from 2019 to 2021, uh, the Washington Poison Center is logging a much higher number of youth who are coming into emergency rooms um, after having taken a substance or medication uh, to self-harm or attempt a suicide. So it's pretty dark stuff. Yes. And this is this is parents' medications? Are we talking about, you know, their parents' antidepressants? Are they talking about something that these little kids know is poison? Do you, I mean, that's a broad question, but I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of what what's being what's happening here. Yeah. So um after this was reported, uh, a lot of healthcare providers, as well as behavioral health specialists, um, have definitely been putting out that call to parents to make sure that they're locking away their over-the-counter and prescription medication, um, because that's really inside the home, the most accessible way that a child of this age, and we're talking as young as 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, can access these types of substances um, so they're really getting that messaging out there now. Um, and some of the data that was coming in was truly like you can really see how uh, concerning this is. Um, apparently in that time period, 58% um, increase in patients 6 to 12 years old. And just to put this into a little more perspective, um, it seems to be um, really heightened starting from the age of 10 um, and 37% in patients ages 13 to 17 years um, so those are all increases that they've seen in just the last several years. Um, and in speaking with some of those mental health specialists, uh, they say that a youth mental health crisis, um, it's something that uh, they've been seeing data about even before the pandemic, that that's where we were heading. Um, and I think the pandemic did not help, um, especially when you're that young. I mean, one of the behavioral health specialists even put it to me in this perspective of when you're young, a year feels like a century. And mm. if you really put that into perspective, these children have not lived very long. So it is a big portion of their lives. Um, and she did say that there were some other elements uh, before the pandemic, including FaceTime and technology even. Um, and some of that exposure that, uh, you know, especially adolescents and teens are kind of dealing with online. Yeah, yeah. God, that's troubling. You And Allison, you were saying um, that we're we're. We're kind of we're used to locking medications away from from toddlers. You know, you put the little lock on your cabinet or or teenage, you know, troubled teens. We we know about it as being a suicide risk. We just don't usually think of that with a, you know, an eight, 10 year old kid. That that really struck me that that part of the that article about how you don't think of a 10 year old or an eight year old considering mortality, considering self-harm. Mm -hmm. Um and I think that's a huge mistake. I think in many different arenas to assume that younger children aren't dealing with large issues and might need some 
need mental health screening in advance and not just as a reaction to a really terrible event like this. But yeah, you know, I think that when I think about my friends with children and, and family, I will definitely be raising the idea that there's no age at which they're safe from the toddlers that could get into a, a bottle to an eight or 10 year old who might be dealing with some very huge problems and might turn to what's in the home because they, they are not going out on the streets or going out to, to steal something. Um, on, that's, that's where they're going is inside the house. Right. Jennifer, any, uh, f- any more advice, um, you know, what we can do about it that, that you learned? Mm -hmm. The number one thing I kept hearing is to create a culture of communication. Um, And this was also directly communicated by Dr. Kira Maseth. She's um, on the behavioral health strike team for Department of Health here in Washington State. Um, And she was saying that having that open communication, asking those open-ended questions and building uh, that type of relationship within the household um, can help you as a parent know what your child's baseline is. Um, And you'll have a clear understanding if they deter from that baseline, okay, something is up, um, and to start intervening uh, from that point on. Open-ended questions, meaning just checking in. How are you? How are you doing? Just and listening, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. Not just the, do you want this? Do you want that? How was school today? (laughs) Yeah, not just how was school. What did you learn today? Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, You're listening to KOW's Week in Review. Thanks for filling us uh, in on that, Jennifer. We uh, another item I want to um, bring attention to is not so much something that happened this week, but it's something that's that's being considered this week and and is going to be on the plate of the of our local government for um, months to come. Here, uh, David, we we're still building out our light rail system. It's it's going to go to the east side eventually. It's West Seattle, etc. And part of that work involves putting a second light rail station in Chinatown International District. This is going to be a transfer, a hub where passengers switch trains. And how disruptive this project is going to be, a lot of it comes down to one decision, which doesn't sound like a big difference, fourth or fifth. But why is one block a giant deal? Yeah, um, my colleague Mike Limblom has has written about this a good amount. it's a big deal because so and if you can picture the Chinatown International District, Fifth Avenue is the one that kind of goes it's like just uh, west of Awajamaya between Awajamaya and where the current light rail station is. And then Fourth Avenue is down by the, the big road down there. Kind of, you know, if you're walking from Chinatown International District over to the stadiums, you cross that. Big, you have to cross big, it arterial. Right. Um, and so the, the big difference here is so. Uh, by the way, to help people picture this, just it's so fourth is on the other side of Union Station, so that's where the gate, the gateway to Chinatown is. It's a very different feel. I mean, it's right next to those businesses. Four, or, four or, yeah, I mean fifth. Fifth, fifth I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Fifth, fifth as opposed to fourth. Yeah. It's 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 only a block, but it's a it's a big separation. Sorry, go on. Yeah, it's a big separation, and and so you know, in in the world of like mega projects like this for for transit. Um, the the general advice lately has been rather than doing these big deep bore tunnels, you do quote cut and cover tunnels where you dig a trench and then cover it over because there tends to be less complicated and cheaper. The the big trade off though is it's is a lot more disruptive to the neighborhood uh, because you're tearing up whole streets rather than kind of digging under. Um, so there's there's already this kind of conflict between um, you know what what experts talk about building for transit and, you know, the disruption to the neighborhood. But, you know, when you're talking about the Chinatown International District, um, you know, it's a neighborhood that has had a really hard time. You know, it got really slammed by the pandemic. A lot of, um, you know, a lot of street homelessness, a lot of a lot of crime down there. And then also has a long history of, of being really impacted by mega projects. You know, the construction of the highway through it and the kingdom and hotels and the, fir- the, the streetcar most recently. And um, but but. So the, so the kind of less disruptive option to the Chinatown International District is 4th Avenue down the way. The problem there, though, is 4th Avenue, as you can picture, is a very big road, and building a station there would require basically tearing up and redoing that road. So it would cost about $500 million more million. So the difference between about a billion-dollar construction project and a billion-and-a-half-dollar construction project. Um, so there's not, there's not really a lot of good options here. Um, 
you know, either way, you know, either you're kind of disrupting a neighborhood that has been through a ton already, you know, both in the last few years, but also the last few decades, and kind of taking on a much bigger project that that could have fairly disruptive impacts on uh, that, that major roadway there. And Jennifer, David mentioned some of the projects that have gone through Chinatown International District, but but residents there also have reason to look at a history of racism uh, as being part of all of that and, and to wonder if that's still going on today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, based on the reporting that I saw, um, there are definitely some community voices, including, um, you know, Wajimaya um, and others in that community saying that, you know, it's pretty troubling. Um, and especially if you think about the people who actually live there, like grandmas and grandpas and, you know, people who just are uh, trying to raise a family um, and to have those continued disruptions um, and in some ways to feel like, OK, we can do this here. Um, we've done it here before. Um, but I think to have these community voices speaking out um, and advocating for the other location, I, I hope will be listened to. Allison, how'd you react? Well, I just I love that uh, historical context. I think when we're talking about light rail, we think back to maybe only as far back as our first light rail stations, maybe, and not thinking about things like I-5 or uh, the stadiums, and not just the newest stadiums, but the one that was there before. And I think that's something that really helped me give some some context to how that neighborhood has been reshaped forcefully and understanding it has uh the, the, the local voices that need to be listened to are not coming at this from a knee-jerk reaction. They're coming from with the deep historical knowledge of what it can do to a neighborhood to have a big project in a place that doesn't suit the residents. So I think that was the, the most striking thing to me is to really re- remember to widen my scope of what it means to affect a neighborhood. And what we see today is built on decades and decades of other projects. And David, is this solely the Sound Transit Board's decision? And what are the governments of Seattle and King County, the mayor, councils, what are they saying? Well, the mayor, Bruce Harrell, has not been super vocal about this yet. Um, so I'm not entirely clear on his thinking here. Uh, mayor Jenny Durkin before him um, was was not in favor of, uh, of the project that was going to be most disruptive in Chinatown International District. She, she wanted, um, and she, you know, the, 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 board, the Sound Transit Board is made up of elected officials from around the region. So uh, traditionally, the mayor of Seattle sits on the board. So yep. both Mayor Carroll and Mayor Durkin um, before him have been on the board. So she, she was kind of vocal in, in finding a way around. Um, she, she wasn't specific about what the alternative would be, but finding a way around um, having a disruptive project in the international district. Because, you know, it's it's more than just it's you know loud noises or whatever, like certain businesses uh, you can picture the Joe's Tavern there and Ping's Dumplings and a few other businesses. That would actually be torn up. Uh, that building would be gone. And then, you know, the gate that's right there that couldn't get any more symbolic than this, they'd have to wrap it to keep it from being damaged for, you know, years as they do this project. So the the impacts would be pretty significant. But again, uh, this is already, you know, Sound Transit is already struggling with um, increased costs, they just got off of this concrete strike that has been really disruptive. Everything's being more expensive. So um, doing the alternative on Fourth Avenue, again, like I said, it's just it just requires a lot more money. <laughs> right. Yeah. People would be um, have to leave their homes for years. Yeah. You know, just go on. And what's the big uh, we'll, we'll move on to another topic. But um, what besides money and, and, and that's a lot. What about how long this would take if we if if the if the dig went um, deep versus shallow, Fourth Avenue versus Fifth Avenue? Can you give us a sense of what what the options are? Yeah, I, I don't have the, I don't have the timelines off the top of my head, so I don't want to I don't want to misstate them. Um, I'll pivot though when you when you mention the the deep question. That mm-hmm. is another aspect of this, which is um, when you're doing the deep bore tunnel, which is what uh, the you know, one of the options would would be is you're you're going really deep. You have this question of actually how long it takes you to get from the street down to the station, and that's been a major concern. Is some of the options they're looking at, it would add you know six minutes from getting to the to the street down to the train, which doesn't sound that big when you say it that way. But if you're already sort of talking about twenty minutes, or you're trying to kind of make this as efficient of a system as possible, if you're going doing that deep bore um, tunnel. And it's taking you six minutes to get from the platform to the street. That's you know a significant addition. Um, That's if the trip. escalator works. It's really more <laughs> right. like a half hour. 
I mean, and that's a that's real. I mean, I don't I don't know that I, you could find anybody in the city of Seattle who is going to put their trust in uh, escalators working and sound transit stations. It's amazing if you're not a light rail lighter writer. I'm not just saying this to be a crank. It's just stunning. I'm sure it's it's there's something hard about it, but um, escalators are broken down. Ah, boy, I don't want to exaggerate and, it, but it seems and, like yeah. And I mean, it's an it's an annoyance. It's a, it's something we joke about, but then that also is very serious for accessibility issues. Absolutely. Um, so I, I I hadn't realized that the deep bore would be a, a different depth than doing the trench. It's not like the same yeah. tunnel, but two different ways of getting there. So that is really interesting. I uh, I, whenever I think of this escalator question, I. I, I lived in St. Petersburg in Russia for a little while, and they have literally the deepest metro stations in the world because they were built to double as bomb shelters. And mm. so that would be like these like 15-minute long rides down these escalators. But they did not break. I never once saw a broken <laughs> escalator. Yeah. So somewhere, someone somewhere in the world knows how to be. And they were very fast escalators too. So there, there are people in this world who know how to build highly effective escalators, but... They apparently do not live in the people. The demand is here in Seattle, if anyone is listening. <laughs> yes, all you, you escalator engineers from, we have a worldwide audience, you know, and we're calling on <laughs> escalator engineers to come here and I'll put you up in my home and we'll solve this together. I saw a funny tweet that was a picture of the first escalator in Seattle being put in, and I believe the Bon Marche in uh uh, whenever it was, the 40s or something like that. And the caption was, the last time all the escalators in Seattle worked. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm sure there's transportation department <laughs> listeners just saying, thanks a lot, Week in Review. But there it is. Anything Anything before we, we're going to take a short break. Did we pretty much cover the CID light rail debate? Wait, wait, how about when's it going to, what can our listeners do about it? There's still time to to weigh in, right? This decision hasn't been made. Well, not a, yeah, it hasn't been made, but the the environmental impact, you know, the comment period on the environmental impact statement uh, has closed. I mean, there's always nothing's final until it's final. So, I mean, yeah, they they have meetings basically most Thursdays, and mm. if you want to weigh in, you you can. Um, it, it might be a little baked in already. But. Okay, I think they announce. I think Sound Transit announces its preferred option this summer, and then they actually make a decision next year. So there you yeah, go. That's right. Week in Review, that's David Croman with the Seattle Times. We've got Jennifer Lee here from Fox 13 and Allison Williams from Seattle Met. And we're working through the week's events with you on Week in Review. We take a, one more short break, and then we'll come right back. On KOW's Week in Review, local journalists gather and tell you what we know about the week gone by. We've got Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman, Seattle Met senior editor Allison Williams, Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee. I'm Bill Radke. We're all visible to you on uh, YouTube or Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Um, let's talk about the weather and beyond. It's raining again today, Allison, which I, we were talking before the show, I have come to enjoy because a snowpack comes in handy, but it turns out not everyone is enjoying Western Washington's cold and damp. Why would that be? How could that not possibly I, not I'm, be bliss? I'm with you. I'm a rain apologist, rain lover. Um, I think that, although I saw a, a funny tweet from, again, another funny tweet from the Weather Service, National Weather Service, that noted that our number of hours at the end of May above 70 degrees in the entirety of 2022 was five hours, whereas normally it would be 80 hours, 100 hours. Um, so even someone who loves rain might look at the spring and feel like there's just a little bit extra. Yeah. And this is, by the way, not just about whether you like the damp or not. Um, you you were looking at this from, there's a, there's a lot to take into account here. Water and, you know, and, and all its uses. Um, and, and, and Western Washington doesn't say everything about the whole state. Yeah, well, I, I think with everything climate related, there's not usually a quick one to one more rain right now means that we don't have to worry about warming or water issues for the immediate future. That's just unfortunately not how climate systems work. Mm -hmm. um, I know that the Department of Natural Resources uh, held something yesterday where they were talking about 
the amount of rain that we have and what this could mean for the fire season this year, which I think is a big question for a lot of us is remembering those smoky days of August and saying, well, if it's raining a lot now, does that mean we're not going to have to deal with it then? I would say it doesn't mean that we won't have a bad fire season. It helps. Um, you know, when you have a lot of rain here, you have a lot of snow in the mountains. Um, you you are increasing the amount of water. I, there's a map that says, what our water equivalent is right now in the Cascades, it's over 100% compared to normal. Um, but you know, a lot of factors go into a fire season. Um, most fires, a lot of fires are human created. So campfires can still spark a blaze. Other weather like uh, winds and I've just many different things will go into whether or not we have a bad fire season. This is, I think, the most extreme La Nina they've seen in 70 something years. So it is, it is a very, very wet, spring you're not imagining it uh you can complain about january but it is a little bit hopeful it's a little less dire in the immediate future we've had fewer fires so far this year than we might have otherwise mm-hmm. any other reaction to water world that we're living in i have to say on those uh 70 plus degree days though um i was like i am burning up it just feels hotter than i would yes. normally feel on 70 plus degree days um but it's nice to hear that, you know, at least it may have maybe a little bit of a positive impact. Mm-hmm. Just like every time it gets sunny, I like suddenly feel like a human being again. And I realize that I've been kind of this like mole for the last few weeks. So I, uh, I grew up here. I'm pro rain. I'm pro Northwest weather until May. And then I want it to be sunny and warm and I go crazy when it's not. The thing I like to tell people is that the state is so beautiful and there are parts of it that get more sun than others. Uh, This is wildflower season in some parts of central and uh, central Washington along the gorge. Uh, So there are places you can go that it might not be like absolute blue skies, but odds are it's going to be a little drier. It's going to be pretty. And this is maybe a good time of year to increase your exploration of some of those parts of the state. Yeah. Get out. Mm -hmm. Squim too, they say, right? (laughs) Uh, we oh, yeah. took, yeah, we had someone visit from out of town. We took him to swim to, for the rain shadow, and it, uh, it was a gigantic snowstorm. Uh, <laughs> Jennifer, uh, to, I have some uh, some advice when you're in one of those days that feels feels hot, uh, maybe just by comparison. I've started, I, I need to copyright the phrase heat banking because it's caught on among my friends. So what you do is when you feel hot in uh, surprisingly warm in the Puget Sound area, you roll up your windows and you let yourself get uncomfortably hot, even sweating <laughs> at, or wherever you are, you know, you, you, you position yourself and then you imagine that you are warming your core. You're actually warming your bones in a way that it's going to radiate for, for months and months and it's going get, to get you all the way through uh, a winter. You, it's called heat banking. I believe it to be a real thing because I made it up and um, it's, a, it's one way to go. <laughs> Um, so actually, um, in Korean culture, they have this thing where in the middle of summer, people will eat this like really hot chicken broth, and it's supposed to make you so hot from the inside, heat banking, oh. that you end up cooling off and sweating. So Oh, oh, there's that too. Well, yeah, I've heard that about, about hot, spicy food, right? That part of it is you sweat and, and cool. And then you cool off. Heat banking, Korean style. Excellent. Um, Thank you for that. So um, a a couple other notes uh, here for Week in Review. We've got uh, the beginning of June. Okay, so it doesn't feel like summer, and it's not yet. Um, But it is Pride Month in Seattle, and after a couple of real pandemic disruptions, the pandemic's not as bad as it was the last couple of Junes, and there are lots of Pride events to go to. Jennifer, Pride events get a lot of business support in Seattle, but as you pointed out, not everybody appreciates that support. Yeah, you know, I've been seeing a lot uh, online, especially uh, sort of public awareness campaigns going on, um, and they're using the term rainbow washing, Mm -hmm. um, that during the month of June, a lot of companies will, you know, throw up the rainbow um, celebrating Pride Month, which, you know, sounds great, uh, but there is, you know, I think advocates are just trying to raise more awareness behind these uh, actual marketing tools that companies are using. Um, so they're shedding light on certain companies who may actually have in the past funded, let's say, for example, candidates who uh, are anti-LGBTQI 
plus when it comes to policy. Um, so I have been seeing a lot of that uh, circulating, um, and I do find it really informing. Didn't Seattle Pride uh, cut ties with Amazon for that reason? Because Amazon is, you know, had been donating to some politicians whose stances they didn't like. And in fact, there was a Pride event this week at Amazon headquarters, the raising of the Pride flag, and a group of Amazon employees protested that event because Amazon sells some books that they say are anti-trans, which, David, you pointed out in, in a way is a, is a modern labor story, too. Like a worker, yeah, em- emboldened worker story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we haven't, I mean, this was not, this wasn't warehouse workers as far as right. I know. Um, but, you know, we have seen labor organizing come to Amazon in um, specifically in New York and in the warehouse there and a lot of other labor union drives happening. And um, so, you know, I think, I think the fact that, you know, you know, whatever, whatever you think about the decision to sell these books, I think the fact that um, workers at Amazon feel emboldened to kind of speak out and do these protests is fairly indicative of the fact that um, workers have a lot of leverage right now because uh, at least, you know, in King County, I think unemployment is 1.9% last time I saw nationwide, it's three and a half percent. There are two job openings for every worker. I I mean, it's uh, companies can really not afford to lose workers and workers are coming around to realizing that and that gives them a lot more leverage and, Sometimes that shows up in the form of union organizing, which we've seen a ton of. But then I think it also shows up in terms of protests and uh, workers being more emboldened to speak out about things at their own company and not feel quite as fearful of reprisal or even being fired. Allison, regarding rainbow washing, don't people think of all corporate support as just marketing? And I mean, do people assume that businesses care deeply about the events whose signage they have their logo on? I I do think consumers are becoming more and more savvy about what messaging means. Um, I think there are these things that you see on social media. There could be a broad awareness. And then we're starting to see that come out into the real offline world, um, actual actions responding to that. It's a lot easier to have a rainbow logo or to have a Black History Month post for a corporation than to say, interrogate, you know, the diversity of your employment, uh, to look at your healthcare policies and family policies and things, things that take a lot more work to actually be supportive of some communities. And I just, I do think especially younger consumers are very, are getting more and more savvy and places can't get away with it. And there's also been some pretty high profile places where say a company might support certain politicians or certain uh, laws that are very clearly in not supporting whatever community that they're trying to celebrate that month. So I just, Mm -hmm. I do think that especially the younger folks aren't as fooled by that cutesy. And and also, I don't know if you've seen any of the funny, like Walmart pride uh, t-shirts and stuff like that. There's also a lot of fun being had online, looking at what corporations have done co-opting something that's a very complicated event. Pride is a celebration, but it also commemorates protests and it incorporates parts of protest. And it is, not a one note issue. And it's funny to sometimes watch the very big corporations turn it into something flat and silly. Yes. Yes. That's well put. The best, the best example I think I saw recently was BMW and they have all these different BMW brands in different countries. Mm-hmm. And it was like us, Germany, Italy, all of them, all their logos were kind of BMW logos, but with rainbow colors. And then BMW Saudi Arabia was <laughs> still just the normal BMW logo, yes. which I think is, you know, telling of the fact that I, I think the sense with a lot of this kind of corporate involvement and pride is it, it, they are only kind of committing to it when the issue has become, uh, you know, widely accepted enough that it's a safe statement for them to make. But, you know, in the terms of, in terms of, you know, BMW and Saudi Arabia, it's like, that's not a safe, you know, they don't, the, the second they're sort of challenged by that, they uh, right. are, are, you're seeing this example of them kind of backing off of uh, actually kind of taking a stand. It's a co-sponsorship. It's not a protest. Uh, Okay, well, we're coming to the end of the show here, and uh, where we always try to leave you with something to smile about, and I hope Pride events are going to make you smile this month. Another festival that returned after a pandemic hiatus is Folk Life last weekend, a 51-year-old tribute to food and music and culture and craft, and here's a little flavor of this year's Folk Life. I noticed you're doing a little uh, accordion playing here today. Yeah. You think you could play some of that for us? Just a little bit, a little something? Sure. All sure. right on ahead.
I've been going since I was a really little kid. My parents used to perform here in a taiko group when I was tiny. And it's really great for them to get out and see some music and some culture and some people, especially with COVID and being kids. This is like big. Yeah. What, what, what did you want to get when we got here? What was it? It starts with letter C. Cotton candy. Cotton we got candy. some cotton candy. Uh, there, there was a definite uh, gap in my year when folk life wasn't here. It's always great to see what buskers are able to drum up. It's very Seattle. It feels like one of our least like gentrified activities that we have over time, and like everyone comes out for it, and um, it's still free, which is just like really rare. And so I really, it's super special. I think. I never went to the online things because it never felt right. Like it wasn't like a festival proper. But this is amazing. You know, it's just like I remember it. Welcome back, Folk Life. That audio from KUOW's youth media program, Radioactive, including Sophie Ding, Lucas Galarno, Marianne Muhammad, Antonio Navarez, Hannah Shetmer, and Trey Sinclair. I know, uh, Allison, that uh, the Vashon Strawberry Festival should be happening here pretty soon, maybe July or so. You're a, you're a berry fan, berry season fan. Oh my gosh, I'm a huge berry fan. I grew up down the road from a strawberry farm and have always loved Northwest strawberries. Anyone who's buying their strawberries only at the supermarket needs to try our local fruit. It's it's about to come into season. And also, uh, it, I learned a lot about the history of the Bainbridge Island strawberry farms. It was an industry that was um, largely run by uh, Japanese families. And they were part 80 years ago, uh, the first uh, exclusion order that removed them from their farms and really sort of had a huge impact on the strawberry farms there. So it's just been a really cool thing. You get to eat amazing food, but also a little bit about the cultural history of our area. So don't sleep on the berries. Berries have an expiration date and so does Week in Review. That has to be the last word because we're out of time. Uh, we've got David Croman from the Seattle Times, Allison Williams, Seattle Met, Jennifer Lee, Fox 13. I think I hear Strawberry Fields. Thank you, everyone. Uh, a delight to be Week in Review with you this week. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And Jennifer waved as well. <laughs> Strawberry Fields. The show's produced by Kevin Kniestet. Social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Bernard Ouellette choosing the Beatles and running the board. New podcast for you, KUOW Shorts. It's a short-run series kind of podcast. The first series is mine. It's about what doesn't get talked about enough. Check it out right now. A new podcast called KUOW Shorts. Find it at our website or wherever you get your podcasts.